0: Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck podcast series. The Treasury Department has released the latest set of regulations providing guidance on investment in the opportunity zones created by the Tax Reform Act. Brownstein shareholders Nicola Ment, Greg Berger, and Eric Jensen discuss the new regulations and how to structure investment in opportunity zones to
1: take advantage of the deferral of capital gains taxes.
2: I'm Nicola Mint. I am the chair-elect of our real estate department and also the practice chair for our hospitality, resort, and recreation practice group. I'm joined up here this morning by Greg Berger, the head of our tax department, um, and Eric Jensen, one of our partners in the tax group as well. I love that the part of the this, this slide presentation that is mine um, is the part that does not move. It is the part that was set in legislation. It is the maps. It is sort of the background material, which is great. Um, and then... You're going to find, if you've heard ours before um, or if you've heard others, um, it's slightly different this morning than than what you've seen in the past because, thankfully, the new regs came out exactly three weeks ago today, Yeah, three weeks ago today, Um, and now most of the questions have been answered. There's still a few lingering ones, um, but that allows us the opportunity to really talk through um, the process of if you are either an investor in a fund or the fund itself, the process to, that you will go through and the questions to be considered at each stage. As a way of background uh, for me and how I started geeking out on this was a... About a year ago, I heard rumors of this tax regulation. I don't usually pick up on that stuff. I let my expert tax colleagues do it, but I happened to sit um, in on a CLE telephone conference with Greg and started to think this is really interesting and this is really going to create a boon um, in the real estate economy and create a lot of new investors out there and started to learn more about it. Um, and and geeked out way more than I ever have on any tax regulation and have spent more time with these guys than ever in the past, even though they're very nice. Um, So, and and that's what I would say is occurring is that the interest in this tax program and the benefits of this are, are just astronomical. The amount of money that we're seeing out there um, looking to invest that hasn't looked to invest before in these type of areas um, is, is really quite outstanding. I would say that between the three of us at any given time, we spend at least half of our day um, talking to people about potentials for investment in opportunity zones, development and opportunity zones, um, business creation and opportunity zones. So it really is spurring the economic growth that they were hoping for. So, with that, really quick background, Um, and it sounds like most of you guys have already heard this, but it's always nice to refresh ourselves on where we come from. So, it was a concept that was developed by the Economic Innovation Group all the way back in 2015. Um, It was actually introduced as a separate bill with bipartisan support in 2017, well before the Tax Cut and Job Act actually came into being, but it ultimately got enacted as part of the Tax Cut and Job Act in late uh, 2017. The primary goal of the Opportunity Zones is to encourage private investment in economically challenged areas. And I want to point out here for anybody who hasn't heard it, um, it's economically challenged areas. Um, that is different than being in a blighted area. So a number of people, when I first talked to them about it, said, well, we won't look at this because we don't do blighted projects. Um, that is definitely not what these are. Um, each state and territory designated their own opportunity zones. They could designate them based off um, a certain level of low-income, high-poverty census tracts. Um, and they, there could be some that were contiguous to those poverty tracts that are not that, but that could be designated. Beyond the designation of the opportunity zones that occurred originally, there really is no formal role for the state administration in, in the opportunity zones. Um, I think that's to the dismay a little bit of municipalities and to the state because they want to make sure that the money is driven in the correct ways, uh, but they can't technically do that. Now, what you will see happening in the state of Colorado is that they have really jumped on board with this. Um, The Oedit office has actually created a position. Uh, Jana Persky is the one over in Oedit right now who's in charge of this. They're trying to drive dollars to Colorado. They have a match site that they've created on their website that actually is trying to partner up money with projects, again, trying to bring the money as quickly as they can into the state of Colorado. Rumor out there is that there's more than a trillion dollars of capital gains available for investment in these opportunity zones, um, and that there's probably more money than, than there are projects that are viable at this time. So they're doing what they can to attract that. Um, On here, we list the actual website. It's the state website. It lists not only the map, but if you go there, it has a lot of interesting um, data points that the state has pulled together. And, again, that match site. What we're also seeing is certain municipalities in Colorado Are jumping out ahead of the fray too and trying to take advantage of this very quickly. As an example, uh, Colorado Springs has put together sort of an opportunity zone booklet. They've, as a municipality, said, All right, we are going to go ahead and identify, here's where our census tracts are. Again, those are set. Um, As Greg says, there's only one way to change your opportunity zone, and that is by an act of Congress. Uh, Those aren't likely to change anytime soon. Someone asked me before we started do you think there's going to be more opportunities designated? I really don't think, Greg, do you either, that that's going to happen anytime in the next couple of years. I think that they'll wait and see how this progresses.
1: Yeah, the only thing that has come up a uh, couple of times, whenever there's a natural disaster, there has been legislation to uh, include new opportunity zones where natural, natural disasters have occurred, whether it was the hurricanes or the California fires. Um, none of those have gone anywhere. But as there's more natural disasters, you'll probably see a bill that may or may not make it.
2: So um, point being is that if you have a particular area of the state um, in Colorado, and certainly other states are doing this, some not as quickly as others, that you are interested in, almost guaranteed that somebody in that municipality and the economic development office of that municipality already knows a lot about those zones Uh, already has those identified as here's our zoning that it is currently here's what the municipality is looking for. They realize that there is a time clock on this and that they want to try to help shorten that time clock by making their process faster, easier, um, and identify projects that will work there. Oh, the thing I forgot to mention at the beginning was that these slides will all be available for everybody that is here. So you don't have to take pictures of them. Um, unless you want to take additional notes because I can guarantee you all the stats that we're going to go through are not on the slides, um, you you will get a copy of this. So you can just take notes additional if you'd like. So, um, Colorado itself has 126 census tracts. And they really worked hard at the governor's office to create a diverse portfolio of different investment types. Um, they focused on areas where investment could actually be catalytic. So if investment was already occurring in an area such as Rhino, they did not designate areas within that proper area because there was no need to incentivize growth. However, if you look closely at the map, there's some some zones that are right on the edge of Rhino. So you kind of have to wonder how they drew those lines um they also in the idea that it needed to be catalytic they didn't want to identify anything that was sort of so far out the realm of possibility that nobody was actually going to invest there or that the one investment wouldn't then act as a domino effect so they didn't pick something that was really an outlier um but you may question then when you see the map What kind of that occurs because 60% of Colorado tracks are rural. And 40% are urban. That was also very intentional. Just an idea of the projects that are covered in Colorado. um, There's definitely tourism projects, such as the National Western Center, the U.S. Olympic Museum in Colorado Springs, uh, the area around the Stanley Film Center up in Estes Park. Uh, Out in Aurora, they picked up areas around Anschutz, the entire Aerotropolis, so the area that's south of DIA was picked up, um, Sun Valley Redevelopment in Denver. So definitely a variety of projects that were picked up by Colorado. Here's a map, probably kind of hard to see, um, but you can get a sense there that, again, 60% were what is designated as rural um, and 40% are in the urban core. Um, just for those who are interested, I've had long conversations about what those rural designations were and how they could be catalytic. A lot of those are identified as potentials for infrastructure um, investments such as solar farms, wind farms, things like that, that could benefit those rural areas. Not that the entire eastern plain area over there would be a new metropolitan area. So, um, This is just sort of the core of Denver. You can see that the core of Denver itself really didn't pick up much, but that you get the south side of the stadium over there, and then up on the top you get the area at Park Hill, and you can see where we're starting to pick up national western area. This is just the larger metro region. Um, you can see that entire metropolis area. And then the areas up in the north, certainly Brighton got some. There is some stuff around Boulder, Louisville. Uh, people often question why Boulder, what happened up there, how could they possibly have any areas. Again, this is based on census tracts, and you get to the north area of Boulder. There are some areas that are designated as poverty. Um, And the idea with Boulder really was not so much about real estate redevelopment, but about the opportunity for investment in new businesses, venture capital into tech companies. We will talk this morning a little more than you've probably heard in the past about how you might invest in the business side, not just the real estate side. The great thing about the latest set of regulations is that it made some things clearer as to how you can invest in the business side and how that is identified as investment within the opportunity. Zone. So certainly if I were going to consider a startup company, would I look to an Opportunity Zone? Absolutely. Um, take the money in there and the potential for a big pop at the end um, has has real growth potential. Now, Greg will tell me I'm overly optimistic sometimes, but um, I would certainly try it if it were me. Um, so here, it really, at the top line, and, and we still laugh, sure, we just take this one out? Because we say it's a simple concept. Um, and then when you see the 40 pages after this um, that go through the simple concept. Maybe the simple concept goes away. But at the very core of it, the idea is to have funds invested in qualified property corporations or partnerships that are located in opportunity zones. And you reinvest capital gains in the fund, and you get three possible tax benefits. You defer the tax on the reinvested gain. You permanently exclude part of the reinvested gain. And you permanently exclude all post-investment gain. That is the very simple concept that this was designed to introduce. But as with all tax regulations, the simple concept then has to have a bunch of rules around it to make it work into place. And that's what we're going to go through now. And I will hand it over to Greg. Okay.
1: And this, uh, so this slide actually is, uh, has been in our presentation since the very beginning. So uh, this is preset. This, this is actually in concept. What, what's simple about it? The timeline for investment. You have to recognize capital gain. Uh, it is It's important that it be capital gain. That's the only thing you can invest to get these benefits. can't invest ordinary gain. You have to have had recognized capital gain. Uh, so you get capital gain within 180 days, and we'll talk about how to measure that period. You have to invest in a qualified opportunity fund. A qualified opportunity fund is a corporation or a partnership. We'll go through that. Uh, if that then if you invest in that Qualified Opportunity Fund, you don't pay tax on that gain that you've identified uh, until 2026. If you hold that investment in the Qualified Opportunity Fund for seven years, 15% of that gain is completely excluded. You never pay tax on it. This is the gain that you recognized prior to investing in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. If you hold that for five years... 10% Ten percent is is uh, is excluded. Uh, one of the important things about the seven year rule: if you measure seven years from twenty twenty six, you have to invest by the end of this year to get the full fifteen percent exclusion. Right now, the way the code is, if you invested in twenty twenty, you will not get a full fifteen percent exclusion because you can't get to seven years by the end of twenty twenty six. There is a bill circulating that will allow investments in 2020 to qualify for the full 15 percent basis step up. Uh, We don't know what will occur with that.
2: Greg, I'm going to interject because I have a lot of people who ask me, there's this race, there's this race. Everybody's trying to do this by the end of the year. What's the race? That's the race um, is to get this full step up. But it's just not that it's not insignificant, but it's a 5 percent additional benefit that you get. That's the race that's on right now to the end of 2019.
1: Right. Saving tax on 5% of the gain that you rolled when you have to pay it in 2026. Um, and the other thing that we remember, this, this is a race to invest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. We'll go through here. It's not a race for the Qualified Opportunity Fund to invest in the property. We have different timing rules for that that we'll go through. This What measures this test is when does the investor invest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund? And then we'll talk about the timing of the Opportunity Fund investing in projects. Uh, and then uh, hold on to your interest for 10 years, sell it, and uh, all your post-appreciation gain is excluded. We'll go over some, uh, s- some nuances to, to that. Okay, so what do we do? Uh, let's just go through the steps. Step one, investor, as we said, investor has to recognize gain. Again, it must be capital gain; cannot be ordinary gain. If you've sold a real estate project and you had twelve forty-five recapture, that's ordinary. If you had twelve fifty recapture, depreciation from the real property, that's capital. So you have to, from any source, sell sell stocks, sell collectibles, um, sell real estate other than twelve forty-five gain, other than inventory, anything that is capital gain, recognize capital gain. Okay. It has to be recognized by the end of 2026. You see rules that the zones go to 2028. It doesn't matter. that You have to have had recognized the gain by the end of 2026 because that's the time that you have to defer. Uh, and then the gain must be from a sale or exchange with an unrelated party. So you can't churn a gain. You can't say, oh, I have this asset. I don't really want to sell it. It's got a lot of gain. Let me sell it to... Uh, my sibling and recognize the gain and roll it in has to be an unrelated party uh, relatedness is a is a pretty low threshold here uh 20 relatedness so the gain that you're recognizing before you invest in your qualified opportunity fund has to be from a sale to an unrelated party Okay, right, so i sell something i recognize my capital gain what do i do next i have to find a qualified opportunity fund uh, i can create a qualified opportunity fund i can find one uh there are plenty of Qualified Opportunity Funds around now looking, looking for cash. Uh, that's different than it was when we had our first, our first uh, session. Uh, so a Qualified Opportunity Fund can be a corporation or a partnership. Most likely, it will be a partnership. There will be some REITs. That there's some other issues with that. But it, it's a partnership, a tax partnership. Uh, by that, I mean an LLC that's not a disregarded entity. So a multi-member entity, a tax, a tax partnership. Um, why will it be a tax partnership? Because of some of these other rules that we describe. Uh, the overlay of the partnership rules provide uh, a lot of flexibility uh, in, in the future on allocations pulling, pulling money out. Okay, so I find a qualified opportunity fund. What do I do next? I invest in a qualified opportunity fund. I have to contribute cash or property to the qualified opportunity fund. That's the only thing I can do. Before these proposed regs, People were concerned you could not contribute property. The proposed reg said you can contribute property in exchange for an interest. However, you won't do that because there's no way to get that property from the Qualified Opportunity Fund to where it really belongs, which we'll go over, which is in a subsidiary partnership. So for the most part, you'll be contributing cash uh, in exchange for an interest in a Qualified Opportunity Fund. Um you don't have to trace your proceeds. So this isn't like a 1031 where you, you have to take those proceeds from the capital gain and put them within an intermediary. You sell something, you spend it, you do whatever, you don't have any money, you want to invest in Qualified Opportunity Fund, go get a loan, find some other money. There's no tracing. You, you don't have to uh, lose control of the, of the money. You just have to tie it to capital gains within 180 days. So it's very, very permissive. Um, a new rule I said that earlier we said, well, how do you invest in a Qualified Opportunity Fund? You have to contribute cash or property. You can now buy an interest in a Qualified Opportunity Fund from another member of a Qualified Opportunity Fund. Uh, this rule was put in specifically to try to provide a liquidity feature for investors in Qualified Opportunity Funds. It, it's another another way to get your interest in a Qualified Opportunity Fund. Uh, carried interests. A lot of developers rightly want a promote to share in the upside, Uh, service was concerned about this. You cannot receive a qualified opportunity fund in exchange for performance of services. That's Even if it's taxable, even if you receive a capital interest that's taxable up front, it has to be solely for cash or for uh, contribution of property. Uh, Prior to these regulations, I think there's still some question about this, what if I pay fair value for my carried interest, I think there's still a concern that the reason you got the carried interest or even had the right to buy it was because of services. So it's absolutely clear you cannot get the interest for services. It's a little less clear, can I buy it for fair value? Okay, so we, we talked a bit about the 180-day rule. Uh, and again, the general rule is the contribution to the Qualified Opportunity Fund must be made within 180 days. There's uh, there's an exception to that rule where we can stretch that period out. We can stretch that period out almost a year under uh, the facts. If the gain was from a sale of an asset from a partnership, the partnership was the seller, the partnership itself can be the investor in, the, in a Qualified Opportunity Fund. It would have to invest with 180 days after the recognition date. Or the partners of that partnership can invest. So if the partners of the partnership invest, they have two choices. Now, one, the partnership has to elect not to invest, but uh, presumably partnership and the partners will work together on this. Uh, The partners can choose either to measure the 180 days from the date that the partnership sold the property. Maybe you want to invest in a qualified opportunity fund early, Um, and you can measure it from that day, or you can measure 180 day period from the end of the tax year. So for example, if a partnership tax partnership sold an asset on January 2nd, uh, the 180 day period for the partnership to run would, would run until late June. Uh, remember it's 180 days, not six months. So got to count your days or. The partners could begin the 180-day period on December 31st. So I can get almost 18 months before I have to elect, but before I have to contribute that into an opportunity fund. Okay, then what do we do? The investor, after it does that, it waits a long time. Next step is it waits. It waits. There. Waits a long time. Um, <laughs> There's a ten-year hold if you really want to get all these benefits. Let me go through my wait slides. (laughs) Wait, yeah, Uh, ten years. You have to hold. You have to hold your interest in the qualified opportunity fund at least ten years. You have to sell your interest before 2048 currently, Um, and then sell your interest in the fund later on. We'll go through other. Exit possibilities that uh, have arisen because of the the most recent regs, uh, but this is the idea I, inv- I I get capital gains, I find a qualified opportunity fund, I invest in it, I hold that investment for ten years, and then I can sell it, and then my gain's excluded. But I can also get out earlier if I want. can't necessarily get out earlier tax free. But I can get out earlier. Uh, I can sell my interest. If I sell it before 2026, I can roll into a different qualified opportunity fund. I make another election. I, I, I hold 10 years. Uh, if I sell after, uh, after two th- 2026, uh, that, that doesn't work because I don't have an ability to defer my election. I just pay my capital to gain. I've achieved my deferral on my rolled gain. If I've held it for seven years, I've, if I've held it beyond 2026, 20, I've actually had a 15% exclusion. But unless I hold for 10 years, I don't get the exclusion from the from the appreciation. Um, so let's get into a couple of things that the new regulations did. Um, they provided a, a, a whole host, like 30 trigger events uh, that would trigger the deferred gain early. Uh, and I just listed a few here. This is where they really went wild. And if you look at this, it looks like a combination of overlay of, of corporate reorganizations, partnership transactions, and nobody's really clear why they did this. But they did. But importantly, here are some. If you, if you reduce your equity interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund, you can recognize part of your, uh, part of your gain. What I want to point out here is that if you transfer your Qualified Opportunity Fund by gift... Somebody acquires a Qualified Opportunity Fund and then transfers it to uh, somebody by gift, uh, the deferred gain is recognized. That's an event that will trigger the gain. So that's not, uh, that's not the way to trigger it. But they also listed some things that do not trigger the gain. Uh, importantly here, transfer by death. So uh, there was some concern about estate planning and what happens if I buy this and and i I die we 're talking about uh, so 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 you will not trigger any gain upon death they They had very favorable rules the 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 heirs just step into the shoes of the former owner, uh, both for the holding periods the ten year period, everything so uh, they made they made death less sad okay, yes, less eventful um. Okay, we talked about what the fund is. Again, early on, people heard the word fund. They thought, okay, I need a big private equity fund. No, I just need, I need a tax partnership. You know, uh, we, we could form 20 tax partnerships in the next half hour. We'll just get somebody to follow the paperwork. It's, it's easy. Just give me two people, two entities, a multi-member LLC. I'm a tax partnership. Or I can be a fund that's going to go out and raise $100 million and from 100 people. Uh, either way, but but a fund isn't that hard. Uh, it has to be organized for the purpose of investing. Ninety uh, percent of its assets have to be in uh, qualified opportunity zone property. You'll generally hear us talk about that as good assets. Ten percent can be in bad assets. Uh, and then it self-certifies, which is just filing a form uh, with its tax return. All right. So it is a simple structure. This is this is pretty simple. Uh, you'll see I have a qualified opportunity fund. What's important here is you'll see that I have a lower-tier partnership. Because of the rules, most investments will be done through a lower-tier partnership. It will be a rare case where the Qualified Opportunity Fund actually holds a business directly or real property directly. It almost always will be contributed down, not not contributed, it will be acquired by an underlying uh, subsidiary partnership. Uh, and that has to be a partnership. So different from what you might see in a non-opportunity real estate transaction, where say, okay, I'll drop the property down into a single member LLC, this has to be a multi-member LLC. That, that entity below has to be a partnership, cannot be a disregarded entity. Okay. There's a couple other alternatives. Um, again, one alternative is I could just hold the property directly. Qualified Opportunity Fund can hold in a building, it can acquire business, it can hold that directly. This is unlikely because there's better rules on dealing with intangibles for the uh, subsidiary joint venture. There is no working capital rules, which we'll go over. There's no working capital safe harbors directly at the Qualified Opportunity Fund, which means cash is bad. Cash is always bad if you hold too much cash at the Qualified Opportunity Fund level. You may end up uh, having penalties. And I say there's no 70-30 test. We'll talk about the 70-30 test. It's a very accommodating test to measure whether you, your assets qualify. That test applies only to the underlying joint venture. Uh, alternatively, you could hold stock in a corporation. Uh, There's a couple reasons that this could happen. This may be more likely in some businesses, but uh, when we talk about how you extract cash during the life of this, um, holding your holding your investments in a corporate entity creates some some challenges in getting cash out during the life of the transaction. Okay, so talked about what the fund has to do. I mentioned the ninety ten test. Ninety percent of its assets have to be uh, in Three types of investments: qualified opportunities on business property, actual tangible property, tangible property acquired by purchase after 2017 from an unrelated party. Uh, original use has to be commenced with the fund, or you have to substantially improve it. We'll go through those. Um, this substantially all of the property uh, is in the zone for substantially all the holding period. That 70% test that presumes that that. This is held by an uh, uh, underlying subsidiary. Anyway, uh, we talked a bit about the first use uh, and substantial improvement requirement. Mary said that the first use has to be by the qualified opportunity fund, or you have to substantially improve that tangible property. Uh, this, at least initially, was was a little more fleshed out in the real estate context, uh, and they added some some more rules that are very helpful. Uh, one is for a 30-month period, beginning after the date of acquisition, you have to add to the basis of the property if original use hadn't begun with the Qualified Opportunity Fund. You have to essentially double your investment in the structure. Came up with a favorable rule that you get to exclude the value of the land. So if I pay $100 for building and land and I allocate 20 to the land, 80 to the building, I have to invest 80 within 30 months into the building. there's no original use requirement for leased property. So this, we're going over. We'll go over a slide with some good news on leased property. They came up with some incredibly favorable rules on leased property, both for substantial improvement and for related party transactions. So you may see some transactions that could not be done by purchase, that, but that will fit into a structure that will uh, include leasing. Um, So if you lease property, you don't have to substantially improve it. If I lease a structure and I meet the requirements of the lease, I don't have to substantially improve
2: it. Greg, before you move off the slide, because you went quickly past it, and I think it's key um, for what came out in the new regs about original use and the placed in service.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. you're right. That that this was exciting. I don't know. This why. was exciting. I didn't, I didn't, I'm yeah. a real estate it's just, person. Well, yeah. It's very and this, shows, the this shows when she said that she geeked out on this. That she gets excited about yeah. this. It yeah. shows she geeked out. So uh, we also wondered what play, what original use meant. Uh, we thought what made sense was placed in service. Uh, and so the question is: Let's say somebody has a property in an opportunity zone. They're constructing it, and it's almost done. Can a qualified opportunity fund come in and buy a 95 percent completed building? presumably it started on vacant land, um, without having to substantially improve it? The answer is yes. The, the regulation said that uh, placed in service for purposes of depreciation is the measurement of original use. So uh, somebody who has an almost completed building in an opportunity zone, it's a uh, attractive asset for a fund looking to place place money. You have to sell it to that fund before it's placed in service. Otherwise, they're going to have to substantially improve it, and if it's a new building, that's probably unlikely that they'll be able to do that. Um, Another interesting rule about that, which I didn't put in the slide, is the placed-in-service rule. It says original use is placed in service for purposes of depreciation. Um, This means that if somebody's personal residence, some non-business asset, which was never subject to depreciation, arguably has not been placed in service. So you could go acquire somebody's personal residence, uh, not substantially improve it. Use it as an office? Use it as office, or that turn it into rental property. I think that they'll f- probably fix that or say that that's not really the intent and we have some broad anti-abuse rules. So uh, it, it's something that people have raised.
2: And he's skipping over. See, he's missing the things I geek out on, which is the other one on here. He skipped. Yeah. Um, is if it's been vacant for five-plus years. Because that was certainly a question. I don't think as much in Denver. But when you look at areas like Detroit, um, there are buildings that have been sitting there vacant and and is original use here. So that I don't have to substantially improve it. It can just be original use if it's been sitting for five-plus years.
1: Yeah. And we had uh, advocated for a one-year vacancy rule. Five years is a pretty long time to be vacant. Um service. The Treasury just was not comfortable with 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 one year. I think that there will be some effort uh through the comment period to reduce the five year period at least for property that was acquired uh prior to twenty seventeen, because if it was vacant prior to two thousand if you'd acquired it prior to two thousand seventeen and it was vacant, you weren't doing it to try to get around these these rules, so uh, hopefully there'll be something coming out on that that may be a little more accommodating in the final regulations. Okay, other permissible fund investments: qualified opportunities on stock—that's just the stock that's owned by the fund—or qualified opportunities on partnership interest. That's going to be the qualified part opportunities on partnership interest is going to be primarily the investment that qualified opportunity funds will hold. So uh, much of the rest of our slides just just presumes that. Structure, um, So I'm going to turn it over to Eric to go on to what happens with the
0: fund. All right. So uh, if you invest the Qualified Opportunity Fund investment within a lower-tier entity, as Greg was just saying, a corp- lower-tier corporation or a partnership, uh, in addition to acquiring those interests or stock for cash, those lower-tier entities also need to meet what is called a Qualified Opportunity Zone business. Uh, there's a list of certain rules and requirements for what it takes to meet this, as put on the slide. Uh, a couple of these are worth pointing out. The first one to point out is that only 70% of the tangible property owned by these lower tier entities needs to be what's basically good qualified property, which is uh, property that's first acquired uh, in for use in the zone by the lower tier entity or, or leased or substantially improved. The thing to point out here is that if the qualified opportunity fund itself owns the business or the assets directly, you have to have 90% of your tangible property Meeting these standards in order for it to be good property. Whereas if you do it at a lower tier entity, only seventy percent of the tangible property needs to meet that. So that's one of the first reasons why we see a lot of people and why we're recommending that a lot of these investments run through these lower tier entities, just because it's a little more, uh, it's it's a little easier to meet this test as it is to to run the investment directly through the fund itself. Uh, another thing to point out is. At that upper tier fund level, since 90% of your property, if you hold it directly, needs to be tangible property, if you have a business that has a lot of intangible property, uh, you're going to bust that test pretty quickly. Uh, But if you run it through a lower tier entity, there's really no requirement on how much uh, intangible property you can have. You can have a very intangible heavy business. Uh, the only requirement is that 40% of the intangible property needs to be basically used within the zone. We don't really have rules on, on how you say whether it's used in the zone or not. It's probably a facts and circumstances type thing. Um, but since it's only a 40% threshold, we're, we're, we're guessing that they're really not too concerned about it. Uh, for these lower tier businesses to, to, to meet the Qualified Opportunity Zone business, 50% of the income needs to derive from the active trader business in the zone. Uh, there's a couple of safe harbors that we were given a couple of weeks ago. We can, we'll go into those a little bit more in a couple of slides. Uh, and the last thing to point out is that there is a reasonable working capital exception that we'll get into that allows lower tier businesses a grace period of up to 31 months. Uh, to hold cash if they're using it uh, for the development, uh, acquisition, construction of real property or uh, to start up a business itself. Uh, And you don't get that if you hold the cash directly in the fund. Uh, So, as Greg mentioned, uh, 90% of the assets of the fund itself need to be good assets, and again, those are uh, things like the tangible property, if it's held directly by the fund, or it's the good lower-tier stock and good lower-tier partnership interests uh, in the lower-tier entities, as I just described. So, this 90% test is tested twice a year, uh, every six months, and... We got a rule recently that said any funds that are invested into the fund within six months before the testing date are ignored. And the reason that's important is because, as you'll see, there's a lot of friction between some of these dates. Um, If you have investors who have... Uh, capital gains and they need to invest those and they're running up against their 180-day clock, they're going to want to push those into the fund right before that 180 days runs out if if they're getting up against the, the deadline. But the fund itself, if it's coming up to a testing date and then all of a sudden you have this huge influx of cash and you don't have a way to deploy it quickly, uh, you can run into a situation where you're like, I'm going to fail this 90% test. So the fact that we got this grace period where any investment that comes in six months before that testing date uh, is, is basically ignored is, is, is pretty favorable. Uh, so it, gives us a, it, it helps us avoid that nightmare situation where you have investors who want to put cash in, but you don't quite have uh, the, the ability to deploy those funds before that testing date. Uh, I guess the last thing to point out, uh, for purposes of that ninety percent asset test, uh, asset values can be based on your applicable financial statements or basically cost. So, as Greg alluded to, and we've we've alluded to, thank you, Nicole. Is is that cash is generally bad, and and just the underlying reason for that is that we want to give these tax benefits for investors who are putting money into these funds and they're improving or adding things to these opportunity zones. If you just put cash in a fund and it just sits there and it never really gets used or deployed, you're really not meeting what the underlying regulations and rules are trying to, to create. Uh, so in, in general, we want the cash to be working for you. Um, as mentioned, at the fund level, cash is bad. It, it's not good. It counts against the 90% test. Uh, As I said, there's a six-month grace period. Another rule that we got in the recent regulations is that if the qualified opportunity fund itself, if it has any good assets, either the tangible property that's owned or lower-tier partnership interest in lower-tier partnership or stock in a lower-tier corporation, if it sells those, The cash that it receives for those are going to be counted as good assets, provided that it then invests those assets in other good property uh, within 12 months. And in the interim, it doesn't really do anything with that cash other than um, hold it directly as cash or um, uh, put it in things like treasuries, I think. Is it it treasuries? There's a couple other ones. Short-term. Cash
1: cash equivalents or notes with a maturity of less than 18 months. That's it. And and this looks like an incredibly favorable rule, which it kind of is, but it doesn't – it's not as favorable as it looks at first blush because it only applies to the sale by the Qualified Opportunity Fund. Right. Right. So
0: if a lower-tier partnership itself sells property that it owns directly, that's not going to get the benefit of this rule. It has to be a sale by the Opportunity Fund itself. At the lower-tier level, uh, so – Cash at the Qualified Opportunity Zone business level, cash is bad because there's a rule that says you can't have more than 5% of non-qualified uh, uh, financial instruments. But we, we're given an exception that says you're allowed a reasonable amount of working capital. And what that rule says is reasonable is if you have cash, and then you have a written plan for the deployment of that cash within 31 months for the development of a business or the construction acquisition or development of property, then that's fine. And if you use the cash substantially in accordance with that reasonable working capital plan, uh, then that is fine.
1: I think one thing on the 31-month uh, point out is the regulations added a possibility to extend that if uh, you don't meet it by reason of government Delay. I'm not sure what government delay means. Does it mean that I get to take my entire entitlement period and tack that on, or just the unexpected delay in my entitlement period? It's it's not clear.
0: So, what's so bad about meeting the 90% test? Uh, There's penalties. The the way it's written now, it looks like it's roughly five percent per month, which is uh, can't be the result. But it's just a drafting quirk. Uh, we expect them to sort of clarify and change that. Uh, but for the time being, uh, the, the the way it's written, it looks like five percent per month, which is not great. And that five percent penalty only applies to the extent that you bust the ninety percent test. So if you have eleven uh, percent bad assets, that five percent just Count or er, computed based on that delta of that one percent. Uh, but the thing to mention is because the way it's written now, and it maybe it's five percent per month. Uh, you really want to be cognizant of this test, and we're really trying to be conservative here because if you have all these investors who are hoping to get these tax benefits, uh, the last thing you want to do is is run into this this issue.
1: So uh, we, we spend a lot of time how, how to deal with cash, um, and there's two questions about that. One is at the qualified opportunity fund level. One is at the partnership level. Again, yeah, remember the key to the 180-day period and the key to this to this getting the full basis bump now is investors in a qualified opportunity fund have to get their cash into that fund within 180 days after recognizing the gain if they want the full base up before the end of the year. That doesn't mean that the fund has to spend that cash. So that cash goes into the qualified opportunity fund. We mentioned Uh, The the concern about the Cash for Qualified Opportunity Fund is this testing date. Uh, So it can hold on to that cash without consequence uh, up until the second testing date because the first one is going to be within six months. So I contribute money into a fund in October of 2019. First testing date is end of the year. I don't have to take that cash into account. The fund has to deploy it by the end of June of 2020. The way that fund, Qualified Opportunity Fund, will deploy the cash will be to contribute it into the subsidiary venture. The subsidiary venture then will come up with a written plan to spend the cash if it's not already spending it, and will have an additional 31 months to spend it. So you'll see... uh, Concerns about making sure that the cash gets into the Qualified Opportunity Fund in the right period of time. Uh, The sensitivity there is what was the time that the capital gain was recognized. And then you'll see that that cash has to get out of the fund into the subsidiary entity within the appropriate time before the second testing day, And then you have 31 months or more if you have government delay to to spend that cash down below.
2: Greg, Greg? Quick point: We haven't discussed yet, but I know we constantly get the question that um, can you have non-capital gain investors? Um, and the the answer we know is yes, but it counts against cash as well. Correct? Well, the answer is yes.
1: You can have, or you can have a mixed fund. A qualified opportunity fund can have investors that have not contributed capital gain; they just don't get any of the benefits. Uh, I, structurally, if you have someone that's going. So so here's why you do that. Maybe they invest in a fund and and, uh, they may have future capital contributions. They hope or expect they'll be able to match those, so they still do that investment through a fund. If it's somebody who knows they're investing something that's not going to be capital gain, uh, we'd probably structure it, just have a separate partnership as one of the partners of this underlying venture and put non-qualified opportunity fund money there just so they're not subject to all of these other rules.
0: Okay. Uh, So a couple of structuring examples on on how we would deal with a couple of types of acquisitions. So the first one is if we're going to develop vacant land. And the structure that we set out is basically the one that Greg just talked about, is that we're going to – primarily set it up as an acquisition by a lower tier entity. And, and primarily, again, that's, that's to take advantage of a couple of the beneficial rules, uh, one being that at the lower level, only 70% of the tangible assets need to be good property, uh, plus you get that 31-month reasonable working capital exception where that cash uh, is, is, is fine, where it, it doesn't count against you. And that's important in the construction context because it takes cash to build stuff.
1: That was not in the regulations. That it takes cash to build stuff. It's just intuitive. Yeah. No, well, yeah, nothing's intuitive
2: something. in yeah, this. Yeah.
1: Or debt to build stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: another thing to point out, if you're doing uh, acquiring vacant land, there's not a substantial improvement requirement for that vacant land.
1: Uh, even though there's not a substantial improvement test, there are some anti-abuse rules that says you just can't hold on to the land. You still need a trader business. Right,
0: the, the the land needs to be used basically in connection with a trader business. If you just hold this big piece of property and you're only developing a very small amount of it, or if you're just acquiring land and not really doing anything with it, uh, that's not going to count. Uh, And it really just sort of runs contrary. I mean, the idea of not doing anything with the land runs contrary to the rules, because we want you to actually create stuff within the zone. So you can't land bank.
1: Right. The the, the preamble to the regulations specifically say the anti-abuse rules intend to stop land banking, so you can't buy land that... They even say you can't buy land and just continue to farm it, um, which because they say there's no capital investment, really. They may or may not be right, but they're trying to prevent land banking.
0: Okay. Uh, So the next example is if we end up acquiring an existing building. Uh, Same general structure. We'd recommend running it through the lower tier entity. Uh, Cash comes into the qualified opportunity fund. You push it down. You do a reasonable working capital exception written plan to get the 31-month benefit. Uh, But here you do have to substantially improve the building. Uh, What substantial improvement means is basically you have to double your cost cost of the building. So when you acquire land plus building, we only look at the allocated cost of the building itself for purposes of determining whether you've substantially improved it. So if I buy a piece of property that has a building on it, uh, I pay 100 bucks for it, 60 is allocated to the land, 40 is allocated to the building, I only have to add $40 of value, uh, which is the value of the property itself, or the, the real estate, the building, sorry, uh, within the 30 months for the substantial improvement test to be met. Um, Another thing to mention is that the substantial improvement, it's tested on an asset-by-asset basis. So if I buy real estate that has two buildings and one of them is fine and doesn't need to be improved or you can't really fit that many improvements into it, but the other totally needs to be improved, the one that doesn't need to be improved isn't going to count as a good asset, even though maybe you more than triple the value of the, or triple your expenses or costs into the separate building that needs to be improved. Uh, So that is one sort of uh, downfall of acquiring uh, real estate with multiple buildings where one of them's fine and one of them is less fine.
1: Yeah, and the regulations have have asked for comments about whether an aggregate approach should be taken for uh, the substantial improvement. I'm sure there will be a lot of comments that advocate for an aggregate approach because you still are doubling the investment. There's good arguments why it should be aggregate, but for right now, another example is shopping center redevelopment where you're going to build an outbuilding That outbuilding has no credit to the improvement of the existing structure. So we're we're hopeful that that this is one where they started with a bad position
0: uh, and will become more flexible between now and the final regulations. Uh, And I would be remiss if I didn't say that, as Nicole pointed out, if you acquire a building that's been vacant for five or more years, uh, that does not need to be substantially improved. So that's the one sort of exception to this. If the building we're acquiring has been vacant that long, then we don't need to add anything
1: else. Yeah, but there's always, and and we used to run this in uh, tax credit world, there's always a question of what vacant is. A developer thinks a building's (laughs) vacant if he just rents it out for storage. It's not. So if you're you're relying on the five-year rule that it's vacant, it doesn't mean that it has a different use. It means that it's vacant. (laughs) Yeah. All right. um, We'd mentioned earlier... Leases and these are rules that came up in these uh, recent regulations. I think that these rules are going to be incredibly powerful to solve a number of of issues leases are just treated have, have some very uh, specific benefits uh, if you run into either related party rules or substantial improvement problems or uh, original use so lease tangible property gets to be treated as Qualified Opportunity Zone business property, the good side of the 70% or 90% ledger when you're doing your tests. Uh, As long as the lease was entered into after 2017, uh, substantially all of the lease property is used in the Qualified Opportunity Zone during substantially all the time. Real estate, this is easy, but this also is a rule for tangible property uh, for businesses. And the lease must have market rates with no prepayments, Of more than 12 months are allowed um, if if it's a related party lease. Um, What what happens if I have this lease? Again, it's not subject to original use requirement. So the property could have been placed in service in the opportunity zone earlier, and I don't have a substantial improvement requirement. Uh, I get very favorable valuation rules. Remember this, this lease property counts as good property, but then the question is, well, how much of it is good property? They say Take the present value of the lease stream by discounting it by the AFR. So you can really, by the term of the lease, by the market rate lease payments discounting by AFR, you can get. You could get a sizable asset that's a good asset to help you meet the 70-30 test if you have other bad assets. Uh, again, it's not subject to the substantial improvement requirement because it's not subject to the original use requirement. Really importantly, it's not subject to the related party rules. You can lease, the regulations say you can lease land, you can lease property from a related party. Uh, this is, I think, a key structural benefit for developers who already have land and opportunity zone, and they're not interested in just getting the increased value by virtue of it being in the zone. They want to develop the land and they want to use an opportunity zone. So this structure allows that land to be ground leased into the fund, and that current owner can can own substantially all of the fund. So it is these lease rules are going to provide a lot of opportunities to fix some of the problems. And, And the problems practically that we had been running into on this not so much the original use rule with with vacant land because it doesn't apply, but but buildings or structures, and more importantly, uh, related party rules. Uh, you don't. This this is a structure where you don't have to meet the twenty percent related related party test.
2: Uh, but but Greg, I want to emphasize again on that 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 related party lease still has to be at market rates. It has to be at market. So, rates. So You're going to be paying. And if you have, because I know several people have asked, can you have a option right? In there, but that would have to be a fair, fair market fair, market, fair value. market
1: value at the time of acquisition. Down the road, yeah, it, it it's there. There are some parameters around related party leases so that they're <laughs> true leases. Acquisition isn't uh, at some uh, bargain price.
0: So the last example we'll run through here uh, on the structuring types is acquiring an operating business. And by operating business, uh, we basically generally are referring to uh, your, your non-real estate development and leasing type businesses. So if you're running, you, you basically name any type of business, uh, except for those that we listed as SIN businesses, it, it could theoretically count. Uh, and for the reasons mentioned above and previously, we're generally going to run that through a lower tier entity uh, in order to take advantage of uh, the reasonable working capital exception, the 70-30 test being more lenient uh, than the 90-10 test, uh, and for a variety of other reasons. So one question that always comes up is for these lower tier businesses, there's a requirement that 50% of the income needs to come from the active conduct of the trade of a trader business within the zone and and that is a little hard to grasp or hard to sort of quantify where you have businesses uh, that do things within and without a zone or, or you have an internet business where it's bringing in revenues from uh the internet so it's theoretically coming in from all over the world uh so the regulations gave us a little bit of guidance uh via three safe harbor tests on this. There's also a facts and circumstances, which really doesn't provide a lot of uh, comfort for for a lot of people probably. But these um, three safe harbor tests are as follows. One is that at least 50% of the services by hours of employees and independent contractors occurs within the zone. So, for instance, in this Internet uh, example, internet company example, if you have your headquarters here and everyone's working here but there's income being derived from all around the property or all around the world, uh, that that's going to count because more than 50% of the hours uh, of the employees and the independent contractors happen here within the zone. So that's the first safe harbor.
1: I would Just one thing I'd point out on that is it does say that those hours have to be performed in the zone in today's world with working remotely. It's not that the, it's not that they get those people get paid, but it may be more difficult in real life to meet that example because of remotely working.
2: Forcing millennials into
1: the office. Yeah, either hire older people that don't know how to use a computer or tell the millennials <laughs> they've gotta they've gotta come to the office. Yeah.
0: Uh, s- the second test is pretty similar, but rather than measuring hours, it measures basically compensation. Uh, the, the, there's a Error on the slide, it says 50% of the amount, period. It's supposed to be amount paid, I imagine. Uh, so so that more or less speaks for itself. We, we, we look at the same sort of thing, where the salaries are paid and if uh, those employees and independent contractors, those services were provided here within the zone. And as Greg said, again, that could be a little bit tough too. Yeah, and it could also be in
1: tough in a business that uses a lot of independent contractors because it requires you to have some information about the independent contractor and and uh, compensation there. Right. So, practically, it's supposed to be uh, theoretically supposed to be a good rule. Practically, it may have some compliance issues.
0: And then the last test uh, is a safe harbor, but it's still a little bit. Uh, unclear. It's more facts and circumstancy uh, to me is that it says the tangible property and the management of the business within the zone basically are each necessary to create fifty percent of uh, the, the the gross income for this. Uh, we, we don't really know exactly how that would be applied, but if you have enough management and property in the zone, and arguably that's creating the value and the the gross income, then
1: yeah. And the example in the regulations that I don't think is that clear it gives an example of a of a lawn service business right where they go out and they perform the services all outside the zone okay that's great but but they store all the lawn mowers in the zone okay. uh, apparently, if you store all your lawn mowers in the zone and all the management is in the zone, this works if you store all the lawnmowers outside the zone, it doesn't work. And let's say this type of business may be using independent contractors, and usually they have their own lawnmower, but they're not going to stick in the zone. I, you may have a problem on that type of business.
2: But I, I will say I'm enthusiastic about these new gross income um, safe harbors because I think one, it's it's going to aim towards that sort of business investment, and also for the real estate segment, um, to the extent that you're you're building an office building or some other building, not only is it a benefit to you as a developer, but it could also help you know attract tenants who are looking for this stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and it's it's very helpful in kind of manufacturing business. There, I, we didn't really touch on it. There's some manufacturing rules that say inventory in transit uh, doesn't matter. Uh, you, that's not a bad bad fact uh again we said the lease is a good asset that includes the lease from you know the tenant of your building uh that is leasing that they've acquired good property for these tests and many of those businesses it it's easier to comply with these with these tests or, or or see that they are complying but the leasing were good rules uh not only for trying to structure a deal where you're a related party, but also just if you're if you're a landlord and have a building in the zone
0: the uh, last benefit of running your operating business through the lower tier entity as we as we mentioned is uh, intangible assets you can have uh, there's no limit on how much intangible assets this lower tier entity can have if it's not operating business. No limit on how much intangible assets the operating business operated through a lower tier entity can have, whereas if it ran directly under the fund, then it 's limited to basically ten percent, otherwise you bust the ninety percent test uh, so one other important question that often comes up is yeah we we get that you invest in this, you hold it for 10 years, but what about income that's generated by your investment in the funds during that 10 years? Because the goal is that this actually be a profitable venture for you and that it be kicking out uh, random or you, you know somewhat continuous uh, distributions of income. Um, and so the general rule is that normal tax rules apply. So if you invest in a fund and it's a partnership, uh, Any gain that is allocated to you while you hold that investment, that's going to be taxable to you, just as it would in any other venture like that. Uh, If your fund itself is a corporation, then any dividends you get while you hold it, that is going to be taxable to you, just as it would in any other event. Um, One a bigger question that you often get in the real estate context is, well, what if we make debt finance distributions? If we refinance? And then we pull out some of our equity and distribute that. And we got some rules in the regs that basically say, if you wait two years and you have enough basis, then you can pull out the cash through debt financing. And that's easier in the partnership context because, uh, I, I think we mentioned it, but if not, when you invest in these funds, these opportunity funds, your basis is going to be zero if you're rolling in capital gains. So, you're going to need to get some basis in your investment in the fund in order to be able to pull cash out without it being taxable. In the partnership context, that's easier because when the entity itself uh, takes on debt, each of the partners, depending on the partnership agreement and how they allocate debt, each of them should be allocated some amount of that debt, and they would get corresponding basis for that. So that is going to protect them from uh, being taxed on those distributions. If your fund itself is a corporation, things are going to be a little bit more tricky because if the corporation itself takes on debt, the same rules don't apply, where you get basis credit for the corporation's debt. Uh, So this is a harder rule for corporations uh, in investments in corporations, I guess one way you could get basis uh, is if you wait the five or seven years and get the step up in basis of ten or fifteen percent uh, but it, it, i, I don 't know how likely that is okay so then uh, one of the questions is, is it 's time
1: for the to exit the venture what i 'd really like to do i 've held on to this thing for more than ten years, and I would like to pay zero taxes on what I'm getting out. Can I do that? Yes. Can I do that on each of these three exits? No. Um, so the the rules that the statute said, well, there's really three places where I can sell my asset, right? I am, uh, under under our structure, uh, The the taxpayer owns an interest in a qualified opportunity fund. The qualified opportunity fund owns an interest in a underlying joint venture and that joint venture owns property okay it could sell the asset that's what your buyer most wants so it sells the asset what happens Uh, sells the asset down at that underlying joint venture gain is recognized either capital gain or perhaps uh, depreciation recapture it's all taxable that transaction under the current regulations will not provide any exclusion it's just taxable So, don't do
2: that.
1: Don't do that. If this is like House Hunters (laughs) International, people would cross off number three. We're not going to pick that one. Okay, so now we're deciding between one and two. Um, They each have uh, their nuances. So, instead, let's say the Qualified Opportunity Fund is going to sell the partnership interest of the fund. That, in some cases, will be completely tax free. In other cases, it will not be completely tax-free. The rule is, and again, for each of these, it, it, we're presuming that the ultimate taxpayer has held its interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund for more than 10 years. Okay, If that's the case and the Qualified Opportunity Fund sells the interest in the underlying partnership, any capital gain that flows through to the taxpayer of the Qualified Opportunity Fund on its K-1 is excluded. Okay. That does not exclude 1245 gain. If you're a developer and you do a cost seg and you take a lot of 1245 deductions, that comes through as ordinary income. It will not be excluded by virtue of the Qualified Opportunity Fund selling the partnership. The third example, the taxpayer sells its interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. Everything is tax-free because the, the way the rules work, you get a step up in basis to fair market value at that time. So you do not recapture your depreciation, whether it's 1250 or 1245, any sort of cost recovery. So you have used all of that depreciation, perhaps to shield the ordinary income that would be coming up over the life of this, and you never pay it back. Uh, a few weeks ago, somebody asked me if that was the result. I said, well, technically it is, but God, that just can't—they can't, they can't <laughs> give you that result—and they did. Okay, so there are still. Again, the, the regulations seemed to have provided some flexibility for selling underlying assets. When you really dig into the rules, at least as the final regulations are currently drafted, you're still better off selling your qualified opportunity fund interest than you are in selling any of the other tiers of where, where the asset might be located. Uh, If you have any sort of ordinary income recapture. What does this mean? There still is a preference to have, I think, single-asset qualified opportunity funds simply because of this exit. They did ask for comments on this. Uh, Had Treasury felt they had the authority to get to that result for the underlying entities, they would have, and they have essentially... Asked people to show them how they can do that under the current statute. So it's not that they felt that this wasn't a policy issue to provide this. This was a decision that, given the statute, they did not have the uh, regulatory authority to provide for the same sort of, of, of tax results for sale of the of the
2: underlying assets. Yeah. So, and Greg, one thing that I think is important to point out because I think I picked up on it recently is that it's when we talk about the 10 year hold and selling out and it comes up in this exit, really it's the 10 year hold the taxpayer has in the fund. So it's not necessarily that the, that the fund has to own the underlying property for 10 years, but that the taxpayer has to be in the fund for 10 years. So if the working capital plan for the fund or the underlying business, um, you know, has you buying that property in year two or three that that's still fine. Your interest hold is 10 years in the fund. So you could be holding the underlying property for less than 10 years.
1: Right. right. It's measured by the, by the holding period of the uh, taxpayer when it's holding period in the fund.
2: Yeah. So that is technically the end of our slides. Um, And I will just preface this by saying um, I I sit in a lot of these conversations with these gentlemen. Um, It's, it's, super simple, again, still at the top level, Um, and I will say if you keep two things in mind, it remains semi-simple, which is it still doesn't make a bad project good. It can make a good project great, so you still have to look at your projects with that in mind. And then the other thing is that the when you consider whether or not you can do something and meet the regulations if you ask yourself the underlying question does this serve the purpose of investing dollars and spurring economic growth in one of these opportunity zones and if the answer is no cuz i'm land banking or i'm just triple net leasing we didn't mention that one a property then then probably you don't you don't meet the regulations cuz the regulations have all been designed to spur this economic growth. So um, with that, I'm going to open it up to questions because I know that is a lot of material that we covered there in over an hour. Um, again, taking the simple into the highly technical. So we're happy to answer any questions. Josh. So the, for the purposes of our, our listeners, the two questions are do soft costs such as architects, planners, um, Etc. Count for the working capital safe harbor, and then second part of that is do those same soft costs, um, and including taxes, reserves count for substantial improvement. Greg, Eric.
1: Okay, uh, let me answer, and you can tell me, you can grade me afterwards. Let me know what I get wrong. Okay, so the answer is the soft costs will count as eligible expenses. Spent the money. Um, as far as, so so that's for the expenders, The money is it, is it a good asset? Yes. Uh, as far as substantial improvement, it's possible that a number of those soft costs will not be allocated to the asset, the building that you're improving. So you've got to be careful about the allocation of those costs because the substantial improvement is now asset by asset test. So uh, perhaps some of those costs cannot be allocated to the building that you need to substantially improve. As far as reserves go, that's cash okay that's uh that's working capital so uh just the fact that you need reserves doesn't turn that into a good asset and this after the 31 month working capital test it's going to be cash that is uh just cash that will be on the 30% side of the ledger not this 70% side of ledger again which is one of the reasons why it's important to have that asset down at the partnership level, because if it was directly in the Qualified Opportunity Fund, those those tax reserves, uh, security deposits, whatever cash you have on hand, would be a ninety ten test instead of a
0: 70-30. I thought that was a good answer.
2: Uh, B, d- B plus. Does that, Josh, does that answer you? What about taxes, Greg? Pro- well, well if, taxes. You're paying ta-
1: if you're paying, but if you have reserves, reserves are cash. Okay, so cash if you're
2: paying cash. the property taxes, those, those count in your working capital and your...
1: Yeah, yeah. To the extent you paid them, yes. But okay. to the extent you're holding reserves, the reserves you're holding are cash. Okay.
2: Other questions? Yes. The the question is um, regarding equity and equity recapture. And if there is a refinance to recapture equity after two years, does the investor need to maintain their equity in the deal? I think the answer is yes.
1: The answer is surprisingly no. Uh, we had thought that the rules might come out that what you could pull out would be the appreciated value. Um, what you're limited to is you, you still have this basis issue. So if you can find a lender that's going to lend you 100% on your asset, good luck, and you you can pull that out. Um, remember, as Eric said, you start with zero basis in the asset. You have to pull this out. The other, So, so you, you have to have basis in order to pull it out, which means you need debt allocated to you. The other thing to point out is that we say you can pull it out within two years. You can unless there is actually kind of an intent in plan to pull that out that would then under general partnership rules still be viewed as a disguised sale. If you wait till after two years, there's a presumption that anything you pull out is not a disguised sale, but it's only a presumption. So you could have a set of facts that have to be pretty bad facts. But you could have a set of facts where even after two years, the service would argue it's a, a disguised sale. Uh, as an example, if you had your fund and then your fund documents, your investor said part of your deal was, okay, in two years and one day, investor will loan to the – actually, if the investor loaned to the partnership, they would still – all the basis would go the wrong way. Yeah. But, I'll get an unrelated investor to loan money so you can pull it all out. You might end up with still a problem pulling that out. But generally, there's no limit on on keeping your equity in. It's a limit on your basis.
2: Yes. Oh, bombing. So the, the question is, if you buy a piece of land and there's a building on it, does do the substantial improvements you need to make have to be to the building itself Or could they be on the area around it, such as building another building or being a parking garage? Um, I'm I'm, going to see. I'm going to test my geekiness here. So I think you've got to split those up a little bit. So if you built a parking garage that was actually attached to it and became a part of the building, would that qualify? I know that building another building on the land would not work for substantial improvement. Yes? Yes.
1: You're looking at me. I want to see what Eric's going to say.
2: Oh, okay. Right. We're, we're testing each other here.
0: Uh, my guess is building a parking garage probably won't count. I think that's probably a separate asset. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So you were half so. right. No.
2: Oh, I, was, I was trying to get there. If you attached yeah. it to it. Yeah,
1: it is asset by asset. I suppose there's a question of whether that is uh, an extension of the existing building. I would think a parking garage is its own separate yeah,
2: asset. I wouldn't count on it counting. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah basically you're going to have to improve the structure that is there yeah and again, if that was
1: an issue here uh we now have a a a different leasing solution if if substantial improvement is a is a problem
2: but but maybe just again, I'm just testing this it's so funny um if you could go back and look at the testing right to the seventy thirty test if the one building you had there was low enough in value, it could be a bad asset, and you could exclude it out and just treat the other as new asset. Potentially,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Potentially, the question then is: over what period of time you're probably not going to meet that seventy thirty test till later down the road. So you may have a couple of periods where you wouldn't. But yeah, you could treat it as a bad asset, and see if it works. Right. You'd also
0: need a very expensive parking lot to weigh. To outweigh that, a new building, not oh, parking got it. Something got it. No. okay. Yeah, okay. I was stuck on the parking lot.
2: Yeah, so. <laughs> the question for the the listeners to the podcast is: What if it was a true expansion of the existing building, and you doubled the size of the existing building?
1: Right. Uh, I can tell you so. And, and let's take another example. And this is one of the reasons why the asset by asset test is problematic. Let's say I have a historic building, and I want to retain the historic building, but I'm going to build a different building around it or over it. But technically, it's a different building. So, I am. I'm hopeful that they'll get to an aggregate approach at least, in the context of structures that are integrated.
2: Other other questions, or is everybody? Oh, here we. Okay, goodness, Brett. So the the question is <clears throat> relative to the subsidiary um, entity and the other members in that? could it, Are there restrictions on the other members, and could it be another opportunity fund?
1: Yeah, and in many cases, it will be another opportunity fund. You may have uh, your capital partner forming an opportunity fund. You may have your developer forming an opportunity fund. You can have multiple opportunity funds. The only restriction is sometimes you can have uh, another member that's a multi, make a multi-member, but when you go through attribution rules, it still ends up being disregarded. So you just have to watch out for that.
2: And, and I'd say that's what we're seeing on a number of these already is that um, developer comes to us. They've got a piece of property. They're going to form a fund for their interests. Somebody else is going to be their capital partner. They also have a fund. So you're having multiple funds come in. So, um, Carl, I think you had a question. So the question is, if you're dealing with investing in a business um, and this 50-50, the safe harbor rule, how is the reporting going up to the fund um, and getting reported to the IRS. And yeah. So the reporting stuff is all uh being sorted out right now, I think, in in part on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what the reporting requirements
1: are going to look like. Now, in so so but I want point, there's two contexts there. One is in that case, the underlying partnership is running this operating business. The within that underlying joint venture agreement, presumably there will be all sorts of provisions that allow the Qualified Opportunity Fund to get the appropriate information from the underlying business to be able to determine whether it's satisfying those requirements. So your your list of reporting requirements is probably going to expand than what you would see in a traditional uh, JV agreement.
2: And I would say what... Well, what we're hearing certainly is they're they're trying to make this so that the reporting is not too onerous. Um, And yet we keep hearing more stuff because they, uh, one, want to make sure these qualify. But then, two, they really do want to measure um, if the investments are going where they want them to go. So I think you're going to see some of that layer on and not for sort of to make it onerous, but just so they can track, okay, this is how many jobs were created. This is the purposes of the type of investment you're saying. But. Yeah.
1: So I think there's two types of, of reporting that's going to be required. One is just relative macro data, which was actually in the first bipartisan bill, and it got knocked out during tax reform, not because anybody objected to it, but because of procedural rules in tax reform and what could go through. That now has been uh, reintroduced as a, as a separate bipartisan bill. So there will be kind of the macro reporting requirements of from the fund level about what zones am I investing in, what type of money. It should be very – it shouldn't be that onerous. The second one that you're talking about is, okay, now what's my reporting to make sure that I comply? Um, yeah, think Think of the reporting for low-income housing tax credit deals. Then there's all sorts of requirements. It's going to be – there will be compliance uh, requirements. Uh, opportunity zones have also created opportunities for uh, compliance businesses, uh, and there's plenty of them out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter, so the question from Peter was: If I have an interest in a partnership, is it a is it an opportunity zone? Absolutely. Okay, if I have an interest in an opportunity zone partnership, and I sell that. Is there a time frame in which I need to reinvest that in another Opportunity Zone to not realize gain?
0: Yeah. 12 months. Uh, well,
1: 180 we... days. No, he's talking about... So let, let, yeah, you I mean, are an investor... In a, you're an investor in a, in a Qualified Opportunity Fund, and you want to sell your interest in your Qualified Opportunity Fund. Yeah. Oh,
0: not the...
1: Right, right. Yeah. So you have... If you sell that interest in your Qualified Opportunity Fund before 2026, and obviously you haven't held it more than 10 years, you have 100 and, and you sell the entirety of your interest, all of it, not just part of it. You have 180 days to get that into another Qualified Opportunity Fund, and, and you just keep going along. If you don't sell all of your interest, there's no ability to... Uh, continue the deferral from the first contribution.
2: Uh, Kim, did you still have a question? The question for those listening is, um, have we looked at ways on the carried interest to protect that from capital gains tax?
1: Yeah. So right now it says that you cannot get an interest in a qualified opportunity fund other than for cash or contribution of property, which means you cannot acquire an eligible investment for performance of services. Which means a direct interest, a direct carried interest and in qualified opportunity fund will not qualify. One solution, and I, I'm still not certain that this does not work, is again to purchase the interest. Get a valuation of what that carried interest is on some sort of options type formula. Right? It's usually relatively low value and actually pay for it up front. Question of whether I still got that in connection with performance of services because nobody else was allowed to buy that same interest. The other structural issue, uh, solution, could be through a fund. In other words, not, uh, do not get a carried interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund, but put together a partnership, and this gets a little more complicated, but this is more on the, on the larger fund side, put together a partnership, have the general partner of that partnership have a carried interest and have that partnership own the Qualified Opportunity Fund. Uh, That partners, that carried interest in the upper-tier partnership is just subject to normal rules. Uh, When the partnership sells its interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund more than 10 years later, there's no capital gain and then the money would be distributed up to the partners. The difference with that is it, obviously it does, not, uh, it, it does not result in a promote against your other members in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. It results in a promote being charged against the members in your fund that is uh, your side of the ownership of the Qualified Opportunity Fund. But I think that's the, the way that people are trying to figure out if they can get a carried interest is, is through an upper-tier fund structure.
2: Um, okay, two last questions here. And then there. So the question is um, relative to vacant land and the obligation to improve it or use it in a trade or business. Um, and what is what is the threshold so that you could possibly develop it in phases or or only develop part of it? So- so there's not really a threshold.
0: It's facts and circumstances, and basically what the rule says, is you just can't do nominal improvements to it to expect it to count, and that's just sort of the anti-abuse part of it. So where you have these phased kind of developments, uh, things could get a little weird if you're taking a while to develop it. So you, you know, to the extent you can maybe acquire it in phases and develop it in phases, uh, that's likely a safer route.
1: Yeah, I think there's still... And it's one of the issues that uh, has been addressed. Hopefully we'll get more clarity. But let's say I buy a a, a 10-acre site and I'm going to put the two-acre development on it and we'll see what happens with the other eight. I'm not comfortable that other eight is a good asset. It's just too much. If I have three acres and I build two and it's a multifamily and the plan is for the other acre to be some sort of, the, the the recreational facilities after I build it, maybe I can get a little more comfortable on the facts and circumstances. But uh there, there isn't any there isn't any set uh set ratios in spite of the fact that in a number of other areas they've provided some very favorable set ratios. They just haven't done that here.
2: So then ultimately Greg, you just go back to your seventy thirty test. I mean in your scenario if you've put enough improvements maybe on sure. half of it, then you've just got vacant land sitting there, maybe that works.
1: Maybe, but again, you have a timing issue because it takes a while to build those improvements. Uh, if it's a bad asset at the beginning, you, largely your assets are, are are bad assets at the beginning. So I think that, yeah, on phasing, ideally, at least right now, you would, you would try to, as Eric said, phase it. Maybe put them into separate opportunity zone funds. Uh, again, if, if if your phasing is is. Let's say thirty-eight months. I can pretty much fit it into the safe harbors, but if it's if it's more nebulous than that, it, it gets more difficult.
2: I think we had one last one back there. Yes, Deck. So the question is: Can a can an investor looking to invest ten thirty one proceeds uh, roll it into an opportunity zone fund and get the same benefits as other OZ fund investors?
1: So the answer is no, but. It's also yes. So let me explain that. <laughs> I
2: was like, "Wait, I was going to say yes." Okay.
1: It's no because a uh, 1031 my there's the gains already been excluded if it's a 1031 transaction. The reason why I say yes is because if you take 1031 proceeds and invest it in a partnership, you're going to blow your 1031 so you recognize the gain. Uh there, there there's no way to do the property acquisition here. Uh so you choose either between a 1031 or this if you if you have ten thirty one eligible assets, and we had some people that looked to actually create some boot in a ten thirty one uh, and put that in a, a different asset yeah.
2: well, I want to thank everybody for being here this morning um, We'll obviously be around, and um, we appreciate that sitting through through this interesting conversation as we continue to work through all the technicalities of it we think there's a lot of great things to be done out there and uh, we're happy to help you through that process because it's not as simple as i'd like it to be thanks so much
1: thank you for listening to the brownstein high at Farber Shrek podcast series If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.